He's got one foot in the frying pan and one in the pressure cooker. Believe me, as a bowler, I know that right about now, your bladder feels like an overstuffed vacuum cleaner bag, and your butt is kind of like an about-to-explode bratwurst. Hey, do you mind? I wasn't talking when you were bowling. Was I talking out loud? Welcome to Munson's at the Movies. My name is Kyle. I will once again be your host. Joined by the rest of the Munsons, want to give them a wide berth. He's what is called a born loser. A real Munson. <laughs> and this time for our intros, we're going to make it themed because we're, we're meeting for a horror Halloween themed episode. So as I introduce the guys, I'm going to tell you their favorite horror film. So Case, you're up first. Well, it kind of fits in with my life update too, so it works out all right. I've been infatuated with the movie Prom Night. And the actor, Leslie Nielsen, because I had no idea that this dude was a serious actor because I've only known him from Naked Gun. (laughs) So I wasted a lot of time over the last couple of days looking up Leslie Nielsen movies. But my favorite horror movie would be Halloween. But since that's cheating, I will say Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Love it. Nice. That's a good one. Wait, Naked Gun or Texas Chainsaw Massacre? Both of them. (laughs) For very different reasons. Uh, Rigby. Obviously, I love Halloween. I love Friday 13th, love Nightmare on Elm Street. But I I think just from an overall just like scary movie that has stuck with me over the years is uh, The Shining. Oh, yeah. Just classic, crazy Jack Nicholson, good Stephen King story that with Stanley Kubrick's hands on it, it's no wonder that it stood the test of time. James. Well, the answers have been said already. I mean, Halloween is number one. Shining's definitely on the Mount Rushmore as well. Because of this podcast, I've finally watched The Thing and was so blown away. That's that's definitely on the Mount Rushmore as well. Ooh. The original It had the most lasting impact of psychological trauma on me. <laughs> Pennywise haunted my dreams for like a good decade. I mean, he murders kids throughout the whole thing. It's a terrible movie for kids to watch. Yeah. I mean, I, you turned out all right. Come on. Yeah. Come on. The, the, science, the science shows here. <laughs> I was just looking through a list of like top horror films and trying to I have an answer, but I kept trying to like talk myself out of it. But the the horror movie I can watch over and over and over again, and it never gets old, is Cabin in the Woods. And I think it's just because it subverts the genre. It's amazing. I feel icky saying that kind of because it's not a typical horror film. But in my mind, I don't know if it gets much better than that. I do love the original Scream, though. So I, I could I could watch the original Scream over and over again. I just finished watching that actually on AMC. It's it's a tough question because there's there's a difference between like the best horror movie, like so one that you think is the best movie and one that maybe scared you the most. Mm-hmm. It's a tough question to answer for sure. Doing research for this episode, I came across Eli Ross history of horror. Mm-hmm. What a cool show that is. Oh yeah. I remember that. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a stretch, but the mummy with Brendan Fraser kind of horror. <laughs> no, 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 no. Yes. It's not horror. I mean, that's number one on the it's list. Action adventure with, you know, <laughs> scary action adventure. There's a mummy. It's a horror film, maybe, but, um, (laughs) well, the good thing is we've got an expert here that can help us parse through the world of horror, and our guest Munson for this particular episode is Stephanie Malone. Stephanie is the founder and editor-in-chief of MorbidlyBeautiful.com, a website dedicated to indie horror and genre entertainment, including movies, video games, books, comics, art, television, and more. She's also the co-host of the Cheer and Loathing podcast, where she discusses horror films and shares bi-weekly top five lists on social media based on each episode's theme. Stephanie pays the bills by working as a professional graphic designer, copywriter, and creative marketing director. 
we got a comms professional on our hands here. Yeah, we do. Her other passions include writing, producing indie films, and sharing her love of movies as a film journalist and Rotten Tomatoes approved critic. No big deal. Ooh. Oh, yeah, right. A lifelong horror fan and serious cinephile. She loves everything from B-movies and slashers to art house indie horror to obscure cult films and everything in between. She's super active on Instagram, and you can find her at S.R. Greenhaw, H-A-W. Welcome to the podcast, Stephanie. Thank you so much for having me. Welcome. Thank you. That's a resume. Let me tell you. Holy moly. It sounds better than it is. Trust me. I mean, that's, com- that's what comps professionals do. You write copy. Right. I'm a marketing person. <laughs> that just means you're good at your job. Exactly. <laughs> when did you become Rotten Tomatoes approved? Yeah. Oh, gosh. It was kind of recently. I guess maybe about a year ago. So it hasn't been too long. So we can only blame you for recent uh, Rotten Tomato scores that we don't like. Correct. Correct. <laughs> well, you can blame me for anything you want, but... Oh, that's good. We'll take that. That's a, That sounds great. <laughs> so let's toss the question to you, Stephanie. Yeah. Considering you love your horror, what's your favorite horror film of all time? I do. So uh, this is awkward. If I'm being completely honest, my favorite horror movie is Halloween. But I know since we're doing backups my second would have also been texas chainsaw massacre oh. but i will do so my favorite modern horror film is the witch nice oh yeah robert eggers Ooh. yep very good my favorite guilty pleasure horror film is 13 ghosts ah uh, see 13, 13 ghosts. ghosts is good love it. i love it so much those are all great choices i'm excited to talk about jlc i had a ton of fun prepping for this i imagine y'all did too oh yeah let's dig in Birthdays, October 21st, Warren taking a little bit of a hiatus from the pod, not with us tonight, but Rigby takes the birthday segment. So what we got for October 21st? First up is Kim Kardashian. Kim Kardashian West, I believe it still is, until that until that divorce is finalized. Hmm. Well, she is stunningly attractive and I don't think has aged in the last 15 years since she's become famous. I'm going to say 42. Oh, wow. Damn. 37. I'll go 39. I am going to guess 40. Kim Kardashian is turning 41. Ooh. Oh, that's yeah. victory. I'm over. Stephanie gets it. Yeah. Nice job. That's shocking. <laughs> that, that she's 41 or that Stephanie won? Which one? Both. <laughs> Both. <laughs> well, one of them Google answers, but the other one is, is shocking. <laughs> All right, next up we have Glenn Powell. He is in the we which the show we will mention Scream Queens. Yes. Hidden Figures and Everybody Wants Some. He's great and everyone wants some. I think Glenn Powell is 36. Okay. 31. I'm gonna go older than Kyle. I'm gonna go 38, but I have no idea who he is. <laughs> 32. Oh, a tight window. So Glenn Powell is turning 33. Stephanie, back to back. Yeah. Come on. That's unfortunate. She is at the end of the prices right wheel, so she gets to kind of figure out everyone's score. It's veteran move by this rookie Gus Manson. It's true. Yep, I like it. (laughs) Dude, he's young. That's pretty impressive on his part. Finally, we have our fellow Munson, Ken Watanabe. I believe we did him within our first, I think we did him in April of 2020. So he was one of our first episodes. Yep. Episode number eight. 63. I'm going to go... 60. Okay. I'll go 62. Give me 64. We got a hat trick 
guys. Stephanie oh, nailed it. Come on now. Yes. I don't like that. Oh, man. I knew we had a ringer on the episode tonight. It's rigged. Let's see if she can make it four because I actually have a bonus. Oh. Okay. And you guys might know who this is. I don't know. But you know who else has a birthday on October 21st? I do. Mr. Kyle Hickman. That's right. Mr. Hickman. I Mr. Actually, Hickman. The birthday episode. I could guess pretty accurately his age. Oh, fuck. That uh, means I have to guess this now. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you're either turning 33 or 34. I just don't know which one. So I'm going to go 33. I was going to say 22. Oh, Stephanie. Oh. <laughs> That's so kind That's of you. Right. He just got his first beer last year. You can come back. You're one All of right. Well, I'm going gonna, gonna to play tactically then. I'm going to go 23. <laughs> oh, that's smart, though. I like that. 33. I am 33 on October 21st, so yes. we got a, hey. a first ever double victory in birthday guesses. It's never happened before in Munson's history. Happy birthday, buddy. Thanks, yeah, happy man. birthday, Kyle. Happy birthday to those people, but, you know, this is a, a sober moment where you learn sometimes you share your birthday with cool people like Ken Watanabe, yeah. and sometimes you share with shitty people like Kim Kardashian West, <laughs> and that's just how it works, right? So. Or is that flipped? A really cool person who we I probably should have left on, but obviously she's passed, is Carrie Fisher. Her birthday's on the 21st, too. So. Oh, that is cool. Yeah. That's really cool. Big day. Happy birthday, y'all. Five actors that we threw onto the wheel. As we know by now, this is our special Halloween horror episode. So four of these actors were on the wheel last year when we did Danny Trejo. We replaced Danny Trejo with Doug Jones. So the rest of those options were Doug Jones, Tony Todd, Bruce Campbell and Nev Campbell. Based on social media, Bruce Campbell it was the overwhelming favorite of our audience. And that's okay. His time will come. Next Halloween, we'll recycle the other four and put a new one on there. The Wheel has selected Jamie Lee Curtis. JLC has 81 credits. And a little disclaimer I like to give, but I don't always give. We're not going to get to every one of those credits, but we're going to try to hit as many as we can in the time that we have together. But what's really cool about Jamie Lee Curtis when we're talking special horror Halloween episodes is she is the original final girl, yeah. the original Scream Queen. Well, I'm not going to say the original Scream Queen. Queen. You can make that case for her mom, Janet Lee, Correct. which we'll get into. But the original final girl is Jamie Lee Curtis. Can't think of a better way to celebrate the season than having a JLC conversation. Absolutely. Before we dig into it, though, we always start with some trivia. And let's see what James has and if he can stump us. So some of the trivia that... I found is so fascinating that I knew we were going to have to cover it during the remainder of the pod. To give you some background, I'm going to read three facts. Two of them are going to be true. One of them is going to be a lie, and it's not going to be a fact about Jamie Lee Curtis. It is going to be a fact about one of the many cast members of the mega franchise, Fast and the Furious. You guys have to guess which one is not about Jamie Lee Curtis. Fact number one. Went to college to study criminal justice in hopes of joining the FBI. Fact number two, both designed and patented a type of diaper that minimizes the mess associated with diaper changes. Fact number three, is Jake Gyllenhaal's godparent. Whoa. Damn. Mm-hmm. I want to say that diaper one is the lie. I just don't, I just don't know who from the Fast and Furious universe that Vin is. Vin Diesel. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Known intelligent inventor, Vin Diesel. <laughs> I'll just say that two is a lie, but I don't know who. I'll just I'll say it's about The Rock. I don't know. Fuck. Oh, That's man, you're weird. flustered, dude. That's yeah. the worst guest you've come up with. In I know. <laughs> you're just doing process of elimination. I haven't yeah. seen the Fast and Furious movies in a long time, so I'm like running out of people. Well, James, I think the lie is number one. And I received a sign from the universe today when I started my road trip 
I fired up a radio station on Spotify, and the one and only Luda came on, and he was singing about different girlfriends in various area codes. So the lie is number one, and it's about Luda. Luda! Great song. Classic song. I know that number two is true. <laughs> I like that. Nice. I'm pretty sure number three is true, so I'm going to go with number one. I know she thought about going into law enforcement, but I know she was said she was really bad in school. So I'm going to say that it's not, that number one is a lie. James might be pulling a fast one on us here because he did a couple episodes, all three were true. And this might be the case here. He might be finagling with the first one because that could have been the person who played Ation director as Champ Nightingale in Hobbs and Shaw, Ryan Reynolds, who studied criminal justice. (laughs) Because I think Jamie Lee Curtis studied law and not criminal justice. And I think that's his little wiggle on us. Well, guys, great answers. Uh, Number three is true. She is Jake Gyllenhaal's godparent. So she grew up close friends with Jake's parents, which are director Stephen Gyllenhaal and screenwriter Naomi Foner. She actually loves hanging out with him to the point where he is involved in her career and film choice moving forward now that he's come into his career. And she credited him for doing the reprise of the most recent Halloween when their families were on vacation together. And she's like, well, you know, the 2018 was kind of the end of it. And he was like, why? Why does that have to be the end of it? There's so many other stories you can kind of expand on. And it didn't take much pushing because she's obviously made a ton of money Mm -hmm. from it. But her godson pushed her to complete the one that is coming out now. That's cool. The second one is also true. She designed and patented a type of diaper that minimizes the mess associated with diaper changes. So the product includes a hidden pouch that holds cleaning wipes to make changes easier. She actually opened up about this invention uh, to make parenthood a little bit less messy. And she essentially had the light bulb moment where it went off and she's like, I could just invent a diaper that has a wiper built into the diaper. And lo and behold, she did. Awesome. And I am impressed because, Stephanie, you, you nailed this. Uh, so went to college to study criminal justice in hopes of joining the FBI. And Kyle, you also nailed it. No, that's not true. It's almost true. It's not true. That's actually a fact about Dwayne The Rock Johnson, who went to the University of Miami to play football and has convinced himself that he wanted to join the FBI. But really, he's just a freak of nature athletically and just wanted to beat people up for a living, hence where he went professionally. But Jamie actually went to college in hopes of becoming a police officer. So still in the criminal justice realm, but she was studying law. But you are correct. She was a terrible student. She thought, I'm going to be a police officer because I want to do good in the world. And this is a great way to do that. And also, you don't need a lot of schooling for it. So I got into the one college that would let me in because my mom was their only famous alumni. And I decided, oh, cool, I'll study criminal law here. And she dropped out after a semester. She did not do well, said, I'm just going to get into acting. And what are we at now? 40 years later, one of the most prestigious actors in Hollywood. Yeah. Yep. University at the Pacific. One semester. Impressive. Yeah. We're better off for it that she dropped out. Sure. I think. Let's note, Stephanie, four for four. All three birthdays, right? Yeah. Got the one right. uh, Absolutely on fire. This is ridiculous. Hot start. I'm going to retire now. She's a ringer. (laughs) We won't cast any aspersions here. All right. Good job, James. Thanks for the the trivia start. All right. Box office side. I'm really fascinated to see what Case has prepped for us. She's been in the game a long time. Done some huge blockbuster film franchises. So I'm interested to see what her box office snapshot looks like. Yeah, this is a wild box office ride. I mean, let's just 
start with the fact that she's got movies in the 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, 2010s, and the 2020s. It's crazy, right, that her projects have spanned six different decades. Now, the problem with that, though, is it does hurt the validity of my numbers a little bit because I don't adjust any of our numbers for inflation because normally I just kind of compare them against themselves. So I don't need to do anything with inflation, but she'll be all right, I'm sure. To start out, she has the lowest average budget of anybody that we're looking at. Again, go back a, a second ago. You are starting to, to factor in inflation in there. But that being said, I mean, she's got a lot of high-profile movies in the 90s and early 2000s that did not have very big budgets. And even the latest Halloween is not a massively budgeted movie. It only had a $10 million budget, which by modern standards, is pretty modest. However, don't feel too bad for her with her low-budget movies because her lowest budget is 325000 which is the well-known Halloween that turned into a world gross of $47 million. That's a new record, right? It's 144 times its original budget. The highest number we have before this was the Elliot Page episode, Juno. which was Juno, and it's not even close. That was in the high 20s. And this is 144 times. And then on top of Halloween, the original Halloween, like I just said, the 2018 Halloween and The Fog both are over 20 times their budgets. So really pretty impressive in in many different areas. She's had a few flops, but really the most damaging thing when I'm comparing her to our other performers is her low fan and critic ranking. With nearly 40 films on my list, she comes in a surprisingly low 54% on both fan and critics, which ranks her 41st and 30th, respectively. I was really surprised that she ranks 41 out of 47 on fan rankings. Does that surprise anybody else? Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. The other high number that she has on our list is related to the timing. She is ranked currently 102 on the IMDb Star Meter, which puts her second on our list behind Emily Blunt. And what's impressive about her career is she would still finish in the top 15 if you looked at most of the time in the last five to 10 years. She has a great name and and very recognizable. Overall, in, in our metrics, she comes in 47th for average film budget, second in Star Meter, 30th in critic ranking, 41st in fan ranking, first in both box office metrics, putting her 15th out of 47. I mean, there are a lot of doozies on her Rotten Tomatoes profile in terms of certified rotten. All right, so 15th. Interesting. Good starting point. Thanks, Case. Yeah, man. Well, first feature film is in 78. So before 78, before we get to that, let's cover the early days. We've already talked about it a little bit, right? Famous Parents, We've talked about her mom, Janet Lee, most famous for her role in Psycho, mm-hmm. you know, kind of a, a horror staple. And her dad, Tony Curtis, also in the entertainment business as well. So she comes from that background. I saw a lot of interviews talking about Jamie Lee Curtis's mom specifically. And a lot of people attribute Psycho as the first slasher film. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting that the two of them are starting genres. Yeah, there's a... A really cool documentary on Hulu called 78 slash 52 that talks all about Psycho and a lot of the innovative techniques that Hitchcock was using. And I'll reference that later when we get to Scream Queens, because there's a callback to what her mom, a scene with her mom in that film. Really cool. 
Yep. Given she's from a pretty famous family, you know, most of the time you end up going to private high schools. She went to Choate Rosemary Hall, which is in Wallingford, Connecticut. I note this because I used to live in Wallingford, Connecticut for a year when I worked at Quinnipiac University. (laughs) And I used to drive right by Choate. Right. They had a bunch of bars and restaurants across the street from Choate. And those kids would block traffic all the time, little buttholes. So I envisioned that back in the day, she was one of those little buttholes blocking up traffic in Wallingford, Connecticut. Did the the one semester at University of Pacific and, you know, started to go into pursuing acting. In the early days, she was a contract player at Universal Studios, which is something I don't do anymore. But, you know, at the time it was her first role was on Quincy M.E., which was part of her contract at the time. And she was the girl in the dressing room. She has a couple lines in that that first TV appearance in 77. But to kind of get her career started, she's in a lot of other small TV spots. So she's in an episode of the Hardy Boys, Nancy Drew Mysteries in 77. She plays a waitress in an episode of Columbo. She gets sassy with Columbo in this scene, too. Yes, she does. (laughs) It revolves around a donut as well. There's a donut dilemma in the scene, which we'll come back to with Knives Out later as we kind of do the full circle on her career. But in 77, her first recurring role was in the show Operation Petticoat. She played Lieutenant Barbara Duran, a show that was kind of a remake of an original film that featured her dad in the 50s, which is, again, cool, kind of closing the loop from a family standpoint. Mm-hmm. But she also got fired from that project. She, We'll talk about Halloween in a second, but she credits the fact that she got fired from Petticoat that allowed her to do Halloween. So the best you know, firing story of all time for somebody at that moment. And then the last thing is she was on an episode of Charlie's Angels. She played a golfer, kind of a star golfer in that. And a lot of what I just mentioned are all on YouTube. So if you type in Jamie Lee Curtis, you can find these clips. The scene in Colombo is actually, you can see it in a... Uh, Netflix documentary about the making of Halloween. Perfect. But we will kind of give the floor to our guest Munson here in a moment. Generally, how we do this, you know, our Munson's takes one of our reviews. In this case, we gave her first feature film because it is Halloween 1978. And it's what put her on the map and launched her career and launched a genre in a lot of ways. So Stephanie, as our guest, is going to step in, talk a little bit about the film, her performance, and anything else she finds interesting. This is one that uh, I had a lot of nerves for just because it's such an important film for horror fans for very good reason. But it's also personally really important because, you know, we mentioned I'm a lifelong fan of horror. But this is the first film that I remember that really made me fall in love with the genre. I saw it as a young girl, and it had a really profound impact on me. I make a point of watching it every year in the theater when it shows, and I honestly, I still get goosebumps and chills every time I see it. Mm -hmm. I've seen it more times than I can count, and it never gets old. It never feels tired. It really never stops blowing my mind. Every time I watch it, I find something else to be impressed by, which is pretty amazing when you think about it, especially when it was made and the budget it was made on for it to still have such a huge impact and still be so kind of timeless. To this day, it remains one of the most beloved, iconic, recognizable, and celebrated films in horror history. And as we've seen from the recent reboot, it continues to draw huge audiences and inspire tremendous fandom. The original film starred a young, fresh-faced performer just starting out in the shadows of her very famous parents. 
Jamie Lee Curtis plays Laurie Strode, a young, shy, socially awkward teen living in the suburbs of Haddonfield. Unlike most teenage girls her age, Laurie is shown to be very thoughtful, caring, intelligent, and she's definitely got more on her mind than boys and partying, unlike her friends. Her life is forever altered when her realtor father asks her to drop off a key at the Myers house on her way to school. It's a house of legend. It's the location of a brutal murder 15 years earlier on Halloween night when a young Michael Myers inexplicably stabbed his older sister to death. He was then locked away in a sanitarium, and little does Lori know, however, he's just escaped and returned home to Haddonfield. Lori doesn't know it yet, but she's being stalked by a killer with no soul and the devil's eyes. And Curtis is masterful at quietly conveying a sense of foreboding dread that translates to us as viewers. Jamie Lee as Lori not only represents one of the earliest and most iconic representations of the now genre staple known as the final girl, but she's also the film's emotional core. She's the reason we're so invested in what happens, and a huge part of why the tense, heart-stopping climax works so well. She's kind, selfless, and relatable. We care about what happens to her. Although she starts out meek and unsure of herself, she ends up demonstrating tremendous strength and bravery, which is only amplified as the series continues. Yeah. Curtis's performance and layered characterizations of Lori sets this role apart from so many other copycat final girl performances that followed. Curtis doesn't just play Lori. She fully embodies her. She seems to become her in a way that grounds the character and creates a strong emotional infrastructure. Through the course of the film, we literally watch her go from being a naive young girl to beginning her transition into an emotionally scarred and world-weary woman. She creates a heroine with so much depth, strength, warmth, and humanity that it's really impossible not to care about her. And in spite of the many amazing final girls that have followed in her footsteps, it's a performance that has never been matched, in my opinion. Interestingly, Jamie Lee, very much like Lori, was so unsure of herself when she started out. She even thought she was going to get fired for not being good enough. After the first day of filming, John Carpenter himself called her just to tell her how great she was. But she immediately thought the worst. She said, I remember the phone rang in my apartment and my roommate Tina said, Jamie, John Carpenter's on the phone. It scared me because I didn't know if he was going to fire me. I had heard stories of people getting fired after the first day. But he was on the other end of the phone and he just said, hey, darling, it's John. I just want to tell you, I thought today went great. I'm so happy. Her star continued to grow after the film, and she won deserve and she deservedly was awarded the title of Scream Queen, which has become a permanent phrase within pop horror culture. Though Jamie Lee herself is really quick to say that she was definitely not the first Scream Queen. She definitely recognizes the amazing performers who came before her, her mother included, obviously. Just incredibly humble about the whole experience. She's humble about how she got the role. She acknowledges that she's sure her famous parents had a part in it. She definitely very much related to Lori because she said that she was an awkward teenager. She had friends, but only because she was funny. She said she wasn't very pretty. She certainly wasn't like popular in the way that you would think of like a prom queen or a cheerleader. You know, she was that sort of awkward, insecure teen. And, and that I think that translates to today when whenever you see her in interviews, she's just very humble, very self-effacing. And I think that's an incredible part of her charm. Definitely, I think that's what drew people in in her first role and is what has continued to make her star shine so brightly. Wow. Could not agree more. That is an impressive review. That was very poetic. Yeah. Nice job. Thank you. Yeah, you can tell it's pretty It's pretty personal to you. Yeah, for sure. I appreciate you putting all the time in to give justice to potentially the greatest horror movie of all time because it, it deserves it. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, we talked about 
what was it? Holly Hunter's episode. What was her first feature film? Oh, Raising Arizona. Raising Arizona. Raising Arizona. We're like, oh, we think that was the best first feature film we've covered oh. to this point. I think we've got a winner now. No, nothing. <laughs> yeah. I don't yeah. think anything, anybody's ever going to beat this. Raising Arizona is pretty great. <laughs> oh, yeah, it is. You talked about the movie still makes your, your hair stand up. Anytime mm-hmm. I hear John Carpenter's score for this movie, it just takes you right into the movie. It, it's unbelievable. Iconic. Yeah. It's similar to what jaws and spielberg did just like yep where you can put that music in like any like it doesn't have to be that movie it's like put it in any sort of setting of anything in life like and people immediately know what you're thinking about or what you're talking about yeah, yeah the halloween theme song is my ringtone <laughs> oh hell yeah <laughs> got the right guess y'all it'll often go off when i'm like in the grocery store or something everybody just kind of turns and looks at me and i'm like oh crap because i forget that that's what it is but yeah I, every time oh I that's it, classic that's awesome <laughs> One thing I had a question about, which I don't think we t- we talked about yet, like how did Carpenter find her and like say like that's who I want to be in the movie? Like what was the t- timeline there? One of the producers intentionally wanted her because he wanted to have Jamie Lee Curtis because of Janet Lee. Yeah, gotcha. He wanted the first slasher film female protagonist, along with he wanted to have Jamie Lee Curtis as the protagonist of this movie. The first of a few roles alongside Carpenter, which we'll we'll get into. I could talk about Halloween for the remainder of the podcast. It's best that we move on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> and I think it's important to note as we kind of transition is Halloween 1978, and there's one that's coming out last week. So it goes to show, I mean, it's six decades worth of a franchise from this one movie that only costs $325,000 once upon a time. Unbelievably cool. Right. It's, it's, it's pretty fascinating. So we got a 12-year gap before our next review in those 12 years. Coming off Halloween, her career starts to explode, uh, especially with some other horror films. So, But first, she does an episode of The Love Boat, so doing some more of the TV work. But then she gets into another Carpenter film, this time The Fog. She plays Elizabeth, a, a film alongside her mom, who is also in that. I enjoyed The Fog. Yep. It was yeah. queerly cheap, but they did really well with practical effects on a low budget. And... I don't know. I was pleasantly surprised. It's like one of those 80s slasher movies that was enjoyable. They don't have to go too far to explain the phenomenon that's going on. And then they're just like, all right, cool. Now enjoy the show. Yeah, I agree. It's 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 just really good, cheap budget horror from Carpenter, which you'll see kind of, you know, yeah. I mean, even though like the special effects and the thing are, are t- which the thing is two years later, I think the fog, what year is the fog? 80 80 oh yeah two years later 82 yep it's like a it's a it's a good precursor to that yeah because you never really see people die it just kind of alludes to it over and over again it's like a shot from the side carpenter's picking up in the fog with another theme that he had from halloween where it's kind of like everyday things that all of a sudden become scary you know you see fog all the time but then all of a sudden you see it coming underneath a door and now you're like this is frightening I enjoyed this movie as well. I was going to say I love Jamie Lee, but I think she does get upstage a little mm-hmm. bit by Adrian Barbeau in that movie, mm-hmm. who is a sexy radio DJ. She's yeah. amazing. Another f- horror film that same year, she's in Prom Night, a movie you can find everywhere. It's literally streaming all over the internet. She plays Kimberly. Yeah. A movie that had a lot of funding issues until they attached her to the project and then they were able to get it greenlit. This one, not the best Jamie Lee Curtis horror film I watched in the uh, the bunch We'll say that. I did read that they, for her to get the role, they said that they didn't even have her read. They just had her dance. And that she was such a good dancer that they had to have her for the role, which is kind of funny and hilarious. For the, for the final dance scene at the prom. Yep. Yeah, which is epic. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's funny. This was a, it was a box office smash because 
It was a Canadian film, and it was budgeted for 1.5 million Canadian, and it ended up world grossing 15 million. Pretty good. Yeah, I'd say. We'll take that every time. So far on her list, her first movie budgeted for 325,000, world gross 47 million. Second movie, 1 million dollar budget, world gross 21 million dollars. Next one, 1.5 Canadian. Put her in every movie from here on out. I mean, she kept riding that train, pun intended, into Terror Train and 80 as well. I mean, it's on YouTube. It's a terrible quality film, and it's a, like a fraternity slasher film, which is consistent theme in the genre. Not a great film, but again, riding that horror theme early on in her career. But then in 81, she's she takes a little bit of a departure, kind of. There's a a documentary about the rise of the Australian exploitation film industry. And part of that documentary, they talk about the movie Road Games, where Jamie Lee Curtis plays the character Hitch. The film itself, alongside Stacey Keach, was super controversial because at the time, the Australians were pissed that they brought in American actors to be in the movie. And apparently that, like lit the whole Australian film scene on fire at the moment in time. I didn't watch it. I haven't seen it. I've heard it's pretty decent, but that's kind of the backstory behind Road Games. That's one I haven't seen either, unfortunately, but I did read that it was, she got a lot of flack for it mm-hmm. at the time. Uh, 81, she is the narrator in another Carpenter film, this time Escape from New York. Love that opening scene where she narrates the the backdrop of the movie and all that. It's great. Talk about Manhattan and what's yep. going on and walling it up. Same year. I mean, she's so busy. I've just named like six movies and it's all within 80 to 81. So like coming off of Halloween, very, very busy. She's being casted in a lot, including the sequel, Halloween 2. And then in 81 as well, she's in a TV movie called Death of a Centerfold, the Dorothy Stratton story, which is a true story about a Playboy Playmate that was murdered. And this is her first non-horror lead role. 81 is when she made a little bit of a career pivot. She decided, I don't really want to do any more horror. She's not, she's self-proclaimed not a huge horror fan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She loves the Halloween universe that she's in, but she doesn't really care for scary movies. She doesn't like to be scared. And she made an intentional career decision in 81 to kind of pivot to some other projects. She did say that, like, seeing what happened to her mom, she was very worried that if she didn't stop doing horror, that she would be typecast and she'd never be able to do anything else. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, look how quickly she was almost typecasted. Within three years, she's got all those titles. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, that's how impressive she is in those types of roles. These directors look bad. She's a sell, right? Yeah. Halloween was huge. Let's get her in our movie. It's going to sell. It's going to get people to the theater. But after the Dorothy Stratton story, which is available on YouTube as well, if you want to check it out, she's in Love Letters. She plays Anna, a really interesting concept where she plays a radio DJ. Her mother passes away who she had an affair with a married man. So she decides to have her own affair with a married man. And there is a very, very awkward sex scene that I think I sent to a Rigby and Case because (laughs) Jamie Lee Curtis is not shy about getting topless and nude in in most of her movies especially earlier in her career like this but this scene has no music to the background at all and it is like weird grunts happening the whole time sounds like a very realistic sex scene (laughs) (laughs) that's a great way to put it james it's just uncomfortable it's very realistic like and you're you're not used to that in in films you're used to some like tommy wiseau music going on in the background in these things you don't send your guests the awkward sex scenes too (laughs) 
for next Halloween. You, you'll get all the yeah, weird not shit. first time guests at least. Yeah, yeah. All I can't. Right. I don't want to scare you off. <laughs> but for listeners, if you want to see an odd sex scene slash realistic, check out Love Letters. But it's a decent film, and she again breaking out of the horror genre to do something a little bit different, rom com style. I'm assuming she's the lead in this. She is okay. Um, but a movie she's not a lead in, but still plays a huge role and got her first awards. Love was 1983's. Trading Places, she plays Ophelia, and she won a BAFTA for Best Actress in that film. I love this movie, and I love her in it. She is introduced as a hooker who gets hooked up with Dan Aykroyd's character, who finds himself like on the street after he trades places with Eddie Murphy, and their chemistry, Jamie Lee Curtis and Dan Aykroyd, is fantastic in this. And she's, she's hilarious, and it shows she's got some comedic chops, too. Mm-hmm. Great movie. And this is probably her first big-budget film. I mean, it's still one of the better budgets that she's been a part of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love this one, too. She's amazing in it. Point of the story, right, is to give some empathy to, you know, blue-collar people who are just struggling to get by. In her case, like, there's humanity to mm-hmm. that type of individual, that type of profile. And she, I think she does a good job giving you that sense of humanity by the end of the film, which is important for the flip Absolutely. to work. It's a great way to put it. Yeah. And she was saying it was also it was also really nice to kind of shed her good girl, you know, I'm the virginal final girl image and be able to be a little sexy, a little sensual, a little risque, but still like still have that heart of gold that everybody loves. And all that leads her to she met Chris Guest and apparently she said like the first time she saw a photo of him was like, I'm going to marry that guy. And by golly, she did and became a baroness in the process. Still happily married unless I've been told otherwise. I think their things seem to be going pretty well to this day. But Chris Gast has done quite a bit, too. Released This Is Spinal Tap a couple of years later. So, you know, he was on definitely on top of the world at that moment. Yeah, they are still together, can confirm. That's an interesting Hollywood couple. Yeah. Someone asked her recently what the secret to their happy marriage, because she comes from a broken home and her parents were divorced early on. But she said that she was going to write a book and the title was going to be The Secret to Marriage, Don't Leave. She basically is just like, you just got to stick it out and be committed and make it work. So Mm -hmm. it's kind of amazing. We'll talk about some of her life events later. He's probably the perfect person to help her through some of the things she'll deal with later. Yep. But also 84 she had some deleted scenes in Buckaroo Banzai across the eighth dimension. I okay, so I have some thoughts on this. I watched this a ton growing up, and I really just wanted you to have to say the title during this podcast. That was it. I wish you'd had scenes in it so we could have talked about it. But you saying Buckaroo Banzai across the eighth dimension, it was worth it for me. <laughs> I didn't think it was real. It sounds like a video game. <laughs> it honestly, it plays like a video game, too. The movie does. Yeah. It's a wild movie. The one that she unfortunately didn't make the cut, sadly. Well, she would have played Buckaroo Banzai's mother. In the movie. Um, but she is in 1985's Perfect. She plays Jesse. I've never seen it, but I know the iconic aerobic scene from this movie. Yeah. That's about all I know. I feel like I've seen that all over the place, but I've never seen it either. Just that John Travolta shorts are way too short yep. for him. I know the aerobic <laughs> scene because a year ago, some rapper made that his music video, but just put his rap song over it and didn't change any of the scenes. <laughs> and it was hilarious because they just dry hump for a full two minutes like as they're working out. But it's his rap song that's, that's playing. Great. Mm-hmm. Amazing. I would argue, Kyle, this is probably her first flop. Yeah, box office flop? Definitely a box office flop, but just overall. Mm. I mean, it's one of her lowest audience and critic ranks. It lost $6 million in the box office. I've, I've learned... 
47 episodes in that a lot of these movies you can't find because production companies and others have buried them so you can't watch them yeah <laughs> so yeah. this is probably a, a case of it but that scene lives on because it's it's definitely got staying power oh yeah i think this is about the time that people started calling her the body that became her nickname oh really yeah i mean she's in great shape she looks great yeah she definitely does well earned <laughs> 87 is when the inventor Jamie Lee Curtis comes out, as Jameson mentioned in trivia. She filed that patent for the diaper with moisture-proof pocket containing wipes. The patent ended at a certain point. She refiled again for it in 2016, and it is still active to this day. So she was committed to the point where I'm going to refile and get it back on the the agenda, probably because, you know, there's some financial pieces that come with that as well can't can't blame a hustler she's demonstrated a real stick in her career so this doesn't surprise me she's fully committed that's what she talks about it's not a flaker that's for sure 88 a fun movie with her where kevin klein won an oscar plays wanda and a fish called wanda she's not the fish she's not doing a voice role of the fish she is a person named wanda and she got a bafta nom for best actress and in that film she's awesome in this too extremely manipulative but also sexy and seductive and just yeah she plays the part perfectly i wrote seductress con yeah that's the best way to describe her character she's got some trust issues in this for sure would she be considered like the heavy femme fatale is what i would call her yeah okay that's the first time she's playing this type of role correct yeah Mm -hmm. yeah i would say so you know a lot of people think this is like one of the better comedies of the 80s or around today which i don't really agree with but it's a good movie it's entertaining yeah if you like kevin klein and his style so john cleese and charles crichton you know kind of co-wrote and directed the the project she got picked for this because cleese saw her in saw her in trading places and that's why she got this role she got handpicked for this john cleese loved her in that hand wrote it for her klein himself and michael michael Palin. yep yeah so that's cool yeah again sought out yeah go back to what stephanie said earlier about why she didn't think she'd get the lead role in in Halloween is, you know, she was always thought of herself as more of the funny person. You start to see her getting some of these roles in rom-coms or comedies, and, and she's a natural. It makes mm-hmm. a lot of sense. Yep. yep. She also said that John Cleese told her this was going to make money. And this was the first project where she said everything John Cleese said would happen, happened. And so for the first time in her career, she made some serious money from a project, too. So good for her. Did well. Um, and then 89 to 92... What she calls her favorite role she's ever had. She plays the character Hannah in Anything But Love alongside Richard Lewis, a role that got her Golden Globe and People's Choice Awards. It started as a love triangle in the pilot, and when no one picked it up, they turned it into just her and Richard Lewis. She still looks back very fondly on that one. I wish I'd seen this because I love Richard Lewis, too. She talked about being her first sitcom with a live audience, challenging for her because she doesn't come from a background of theater. You know, whereas theater performers be a much more of a, a natural transition. This was a challenge for her as a performer. So I think it kind of stretched her in ways that she probably wasn't prepared for. She also mentioned that because of that, she realized as an actor, she started to like ham it up to try to like get a pop from the audience, even though if that's not what mm. the scene called for. And the other actors and director had to be like, hey, like, what are you doing? And she's like, oh, yeah, I'm playing to the crowd and they're not on TV. So I don't I shouldn't do that anymore. And she had to like adjust her acting style. <laughs> but largest critic gap is in 1990. Case has it, and it is the movie Blue Steel. It is a 1990 action thriller written and directed by Catherine Bigelow and produced by Oliver Stone. And it stars Jamie Lee Curtis and Ron Silver. However, the movie really is 
it's a Jamie Lee Curtis vehicle. One of the things Catherine Bigelow was trying to do was to present Jamie Lee Curtis as a female action star. And, and she was trying to have the first female action star. The plot is pretty solid. It follows Jamie Lee Curtis, who is a rookie police officer on the NYPD. And she's constantly fighting against people, treating her poorly simply because she's a young female police officer. It's almost portrayed like she's the first female police officer in the history of the NYPD. One of the things that I think Catherine Bigelow and Jamie Lee Curtis do a great job of here is presenting the irrationality of that mindset that just because you're a female, you can't be a good police officer. The plot of this movie really picks up when Jamie Lee Curtis is shopping at a bodega and it is being held up by a robber played by Tom Sizemore. So Curtis shoots and kills Sizemore. In the process, Ron Silver's character, who is also in the store, grabs the gun and flees the scene. So everybody is assuming that Jamie Lee Curtis shot and killed an unarmed man, which causes a lot of problems for her because, one, people are already on her because they they don't like that she's on the police force. Two, now they think that they, she also did something wrong, so they're really after her. From that point on, the movie follows Ron Silver's character, who is a wealthy and heavily lawyered commodities trader. I love the fact that they keep bringing up he's a commodities trader. Like, that's supposed to impress everybody. He trades on the exchange, Case. That's right. And then it follows Curtis's character. She tries to clear her name and, and resume her place within the NYPD. The two of them connect simply because Ron Silver is a sick murderer, and he is trying to... Uh, be in a relationship with her and it's 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 interesting but a little bit awkward i really did like the aim of the movie it pretty much takes head-on misogyny in the late 80s in a lot of different fields one of which being law enforcement i think she does a great job of creating a sense of being an outsider yet having portraying a feeling of i may be different but i'm still going to do this and i'm still going to be successful like I said, she was cast by Bigelow in an attempt to make her into a female action star in the late 80s, early 90s. Jamie Lee Curtis is good in the role and lives up to what I would call a movie star. Again, I remember when this came out, I wanted to watch it because Jamie Lee Curtis was in it. I didn't know who Catherine Bigelow was at the time. The movie has a critic ranking of 75 and fan ranking of 35, which I think is a fair gap. Yep. Being a Catherine Bigelow project and the stylish way that she shoots films, this being included... I'm sure that resonated with critics. However, some bizarre angles and subplots of the film might have landed wrong with audiences who wanted to see more of a straight action movie featuring Jamie Lee Curtis. I would put myself slightly below the critics on this, probably at a 70. But overall, I enjoyed the movie, and I enjoyed watching Jamie Lee Curtis and, and Catherine Bigelow at this stage of both of their careers. Ron Silver is creepy as hell in this movie. He is. He is. He was really good. I thought the movie was a little too melodramatic, though, and just kind of, I don't know. I, I, I didn't like it as much as I wanted to. I'll just say that. I'm the same way. I split the gap. I'm at like a 45, 50. Yeah, that's probably where I would be. I mean, cool cast. Richard Jenkins is in it, playing the attorney. Clancy Brown. Love Clancy Brown. Yeah, Kevin Dunn, Clancy Brown, Elizabeth Pena. I mean, it's, it's a solid little cast, for sure. And Ron Silver plays a commodities trader. <laughs> I'd rather watch the commodities traders in trading places. Let's put it that way. Yeah. <laughs> 100%. It is nice to just for the time to have a an action star who's a female who is not just about like, I'm just going to kick everyone's ass, but 
uses, you know, her wit and her, she uses sort of like emotional manipulation and a little bit more of her femininity while still being a badass. So that's, that's kind of yep. nice. It is also fascinating that she actually wanted to be a cop at one point. Yeah, good point. Yeah, that's got to be fun closing the loop, yeah. too. Yeah, that's a fantastic point. Good job, Case. Largest critic app. We got a 40-point difference there. We got 13 years until our next our next review. And again, she's busy in the 90s, early 2000s. First, she's in a ensemble film called Queen's Logic. She plays a character named Grace, smaller character. But if you're interested in wanting to know more about Jamie Lee Curtis's career... I highly recommend going and checking out this movie. She she has limited screen time, but when her like rich girl character takes the forefront, she's pulling a like a gun on Joe Montana's character, which I laugh every time I see Joe Montana because I just think of the water boy. It's a quarterback, you idiot. I said Joe Montana. I said Joe Montana. <laughs> but she pulls a gun on Montana and like basically reads him the riot act, and she is so intense, so charismatic in that scene. And it just caught me completely off guard because I thought I was just watching like a throwaway nothing movie. And her scene is probably the best part of the movie. So that's Queen's Logic. It's got Joe Montana, John Malkovich, Kevin Bacon. I mean, good cast. Early 90s there. And then she plays Shelly in My Girl and My Girl 2, which happens a couple years later. And that soundtrack of My Girl is just an absolute banger. That, that was my take on rewatching My Girl. What was your experience with My Girl growing up? Because I remember it being traumatic for mm-hmm. me. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I didn't remember much of the the death plot line. I remember the boy and the girl, but then you realize it's really about a one girl's obsession with death. Like that's the whole concept of the movie. And and that never came through to me when I was a kid. No. Not even close. No. I watched it as an adult, and my thought here is Macaulay Culkin's death, which is the most iconic scene in this movie, is so unnecessary to this plot that it is like a classic Disney-style trope where it's like, we're just going to make you cry for the sake of making you cry. So like, I thought the movie was like a lovely little story and it's a unique story about death. And I think it's completely carried by, and, uh, how do you pronounce her last name? Is it Chlumsky? Yeah. She's in Veep yeah. too. I, I never know how I to th- say that. And it's, I think it is Chlumsky. Chlumsky. Yep. In rewatching, it's like, all right, she's super mature little girl. And she's got, she's growing up in a funeral home. So she has a ton of questions about death. Totally get that right off the bat. They let you know that Macaulay Culkin's allergic to everything. And then they just go f- like fuck around with a beehive. Like, <laughs> That's a dumb thing to do. Like, that is not what you should do when you're the kid who's allergic to everything. I am allergic to bees. It's the one thing I have an EpiPen for. And when I saw this, I was like, this kid's an idiot. Absolute idiot. Well, no wonder it was traumatic. Yeah, Jesus. no kidding. Well, I didn't know when I was that age. When I, I didn't find out I was allergic to bees until high school. And I saw this oh. movie when I was a little kid. So, yeah, even worse. You know, like, oh, where are his glasses? Oh, he's allergic. Like, it's as as heavy as it could be. But, like... Yeah. It's unnecessary. They killed this little kid for no reason. But I thought Jamie Lee Curtis was good in it. And I, I thought her playing kind of like the cool mom, hippie, went over really well. And I thought she had a great mm-hmm. chemistry with Anna Chlumsky. James, to your point, I worked at the movie theater when this came out. Every single person that came out of that movie was crying. Every person. Man, yeah. woman, child. Everybody was crying. And I thought... I'm not going to watch this movie. <laughs> yeah, I didn't watch it until years <laughs> later when it was on cable, and I could I could crawl into my bed. Yeah, after didn't it's watch hard, it. Hard to get motivated for something that you know is going to emotionally wreck you. You're like, oh, can't wait. Looking forward to it. Pumped. 
The funniest thing I read about this, well, I, I saw in a video, is she she talked about after filming, the, after they wrapped, she she said to Shlumsky and Culkin, she brought them like little jars, like 500 bucks each in them, and basically was like, congrats on f- filming, congrats on being wrapped, fuck you, fuck you. And like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they, they had like a no cursing on set rule and they had like a, a swear jar. And she's like, and you know, you got to stick to it because these are very young children. And then I gave them a ton of money and told them to fuck off when we wrapped filming. <laughs> oh, I love her. <laughs> yeah. My Munson score just went up. Then we've got Mother's Boys. She plays a character named Jude in 93. I had not seen this. I hadn't even heard of this movie. And when I was doing some research, I saw on a couple of sites this was listed as one of her stronger performances. She's really good in it, and she gets to play a villain, which is really fun. I mean, she's sexy, she's awesome, but she's also just, like, really bad news. And she's super fun to hate, and she plays it so well. And you can tell, I just feel like she's having a great time doing this and getting to, like, really ham it up. So I had a lot of fun with it, and it was it was new to me. So it was a nice little discovery. A psychopath mother, which is definitely a different kind of role from some of the other stuff. Yeah, and she like uses her, she like manipulates her own kids and uses them for like her nefarious plots. And she's she's definitely bad, but at the same time, she's a little sympathetic because she's her whole plot is really just because she wants her family back. But she's also the reason, like she left her family. Yeah. She just left them one day and left them for like three years, and then comes back and she's like, okay, I'm here. And the dad's like, no, I moved on. I'm in love with this other woman. I'm going to get married. And that's she plots vengeance on the woman. After My Girl 2 in 94, where her character, you know, has a child and that can that story continues to grow um, as uh, Anna Chlumsky learns a little bit more about her mother and again, fascinated with death. She plays in probably one of her more famous roles as Helen in True Lies. Um, a movie that got her Golden Globe and Saturn wins and a role that was written for her and Arnold Schwarzenegger to where she got a call from James Cameron and didn't really believe him when he said, I want you in my movie. I wrote this part for you, which is super cool. And it goes to show where she was in her career. I love her performance in this great chemistry with Arnold. And I think the storyline with her and Bill Paxton is awesome. One of my favorites. Yeah. I mean, that's just classic. Bill Paxton's just this pathetic little weasel who manipulates her into thinking that he's like a international spy. It's fucking hilarious. Yeah. When I think of the true lies, I think of like peak nineties action cheese where it's like, it's good, but it's not like you're not going there because it's this dramatic movie that is thought provoking. You're going there because it's fun, right? You're it's fun. It's entertaining. Yeah, it's a little far fetched, but it's okay because everyone who's you can tell everyone who's filming it is also having fun. Right, they they are in on the joke, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and she's sexy in this movie too. I mean, she has a really good like seductive scene where she does like a dance and stuff. It's like <laughs> she blew me away. That's for sure. I read that the dance scene there was no choreography for it. There was no rehearsal. James Cameron was like, I don't know, like just what you should do. And she's like, she just won, she won the whole thing. So it's amazing. Well, and it's funny because her character, you know, for the first 90 minutes of the movie is this like buttoned up, straight lace, like really yeah. conservative lady. And all of a sudden she's doing like a lap dance out of nowhere with like a short skirt on, like an open dress. Like it was, yeah, it's, it was a quite the 180. Jamie Lee Curtis was the only thing people could talk about. Because again, I'm working at the movie theater at this time. 
and she is back to being one of the most talked about performers. Yeah. Performers. And not just that that dancing scene either. It was the whole performance. By 95, there's a theme that you pick up. And the theme is she's not winning the Oscars. She's not getting nominated for Oscars, but she is getting nominated for Golden Globes, Saturns, like Emmys, for popular films. And although it's not a popular film, she's in a TV movie called The Heidi Chronicles. She plays Heidi, the title character. She got a Golden Globe nom for that one. And then... A year later, she's in a hidden gem, my favorite little hidden gem that I watched in this podcast research, and that was House Arrest. A kid who is upset at his parents might get divorced, and so he kidnaps them, locks them in the basement. His friends do the same thing, and it is a bunch of hijinks. It's a star-studded cast. One of Jennifer Love Hewitt's first movies, Shooter McGavin is in there, Jennifer Tilly, Wallace Shawn, Kevin Pollack, JLC... It's a. It was an, a really fun film. Had a lot of Home Alone vibes to it, but I enjoyed the hell out of it. Yeah, I did too. I, I think, and it it didn't do well at the box office or with critics. But I say screw them because I I enjoy this movie too, and I, I I've enjoyed it ever since I was a kid. And rewatching it for this was a lot of fun. Yep. I forgot how similar Christopher McDonald is in this and Happy Gilmore. Very big Shooter McGavin 100%. vibes. And I, I posted on Twitter that like the timeline needs some more love. And Corey Wallace, one of our other guest Munsons, was like, yeah, I watched this a ton when I was a kid. And then someone commented on hers and we're like, yeah, I need a rewatch of this. So it sounds like there's some House Arrest fans out there. We're not the only ones. Rotten Tomatoes has it ranked as her second worst movie of all That's time. That's bullshit. That's false. <laughs> totally false. 98. She's in another TV movie called Nicholas's Gift. She plays Maggie, a, a movie that got her a primetime Emmy win. So again, killing it in the TV movie game in the 90s at this moment in time. And then 98, she's reprises her role in Halloween H2O 20 years later, a movie where she wishes she was a producer because she talked about how like she kind of incepted the idea and is is mad that she didn't get a producing credit. Yeah, this is one of Quentin Tarantino's favorite roles of hers. He even said, seeing a grown woman take on Michael Myers is pretty terrific. And unlike most other films, this one makes everything full circle, going back to the original one. And Tarantino was so impressed on this that he recommended to Bob Weinstein to get behind an Oscar push for her role. Which obviously never happened, but I thought that was that's pretty impressive that Tarantino's thinks that highly of this role. I didn't rewatch it, but correct me if I'm wrong. I believe at the end, doesn't he like she run him over with a car, like smash into him? Yeah, basically he runs him into a tree. That's right. And starts him on fire. It's it's wild. OK, that's what I thought. But she goes after him like she sends her kid away, played by Josh Hartnett and JGL's in this movie. That's right. Sends him away and then goes after Michael Myers and basically hunts him. It, it's it, Again, it's a full circle type of thing. And Janet Lee is also in this movie. Yeah, and up to this point, she kind of sworn off the character, wasn't really expecting to ever reprise the role, but you know, started brainstorming the idea, and was like, all right, let's go for it. Let's give it a shot. Fascinated by the character. It's a great reprisal. Yep. The next thing is really fascinating. I mean, she's super interesting off, off screen, including the fact she wrote, Today I Feel Silly and Other Moods That Make My Day, she became an author, and between 93 and 2018, she wrote 13 children's books. And that particular book was a New York Times bestseller. Compl- this extremely successful actress has written not just like one or two books, but 13 of them wow. over her career, which is, you know, that'll keep you busy when you're between projects. 
but also at this point in time in her career, you know, she did what David Spade did. She did <laughs> many others did, and that's get her star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Oh, she's finally on David Spade's level. That's good for her. <laughs> exactly. What a loser. It took her 20 years. <laughs> I know. Get on the Spade level, you know, Joe Dirt style. She got it right before Joe Dirt, so at least she beat him to it. Mm-hmm. But the 90s was also a time when she was dealing with some heavy personal issues. She um, became a recovering alcoholic and became sober from pills in 99. So that was a big moment for her personally. And that was a subplot of Halloween H20 where she was dealing with chemical abuse in there as well. And I'm sure it was part of her kind of her growth and recovery. He said that in an interview, that was a way for her to channel some of that, those issues she was dealing with. She's been pretty outspoken about her battles with addiction. And I appreciate when celebrities do it and it's done in a realistic way and a authentic way and not in a, feel sorry for me. Look at me. Yeah. yeah. Or I'm pandering because I want you to ignore something else going on in my life. Yeah. Which we've seen recently with Demi Lovato, who claims to be an alcoholic and then says, but she could have some alcohol and that's not how alcoholism works. I appreciate that. Uh, Jamie Lee Curtis has been so honest and forthright with her struggles with alcohol and with opioids which she says she could date back as long as she can remember because like a lot of people in her mind, it didn't start off as an addiction. And so her speaking about it so openly helps destigmatize it, which I really appreciate when people put their, their heart and soul out there and stand behind it. And she said she was never high on set. She would never like, while she's working on a project, it was always like an evening thing she would do pop couple and get that like relaxed feeling is what she would go back to. It is a level of addiction that is not often portrayed in any form of art, which is you normally see the person who is, you know, missing work or, you know, skipping out on their responsibilities with their family or getting into fights or crashing cars. You don't often see the person who is thriving in their career and thriving in their personal life with their family and their relationships and everything's going well. And they're still addicted. And that is why I appreciate someone like herself who's like, this is, she's like, I'm doing the best I've ever done in my life. And then I realized I was an addict and no one was going to stop it because everything was going well. With her high profile parents, high profile upbringing, and then the amount of just unbelievable success she had at a young age. It makes a lot of sense and really good article mm-hmm. with an accompanying video in Variety where she talks about some of the darker days of her addiction that if you're interested in it, it's worth seeking out even more impressive how successful she's been this whole time. And she did say, she said that the reason that she did that variety spread is because she said it, she figured if she did that in variety, maybe somebody at home who was secretly dealing with an opiate addiction, maybe they would seek help if they saw that she was going through that. So I really appreciated that as well. I think that's really amazing. The millennium hits it's 2000. So we're 22 years into her career. The first movie she does in the new millennium is Drowning Mona. And let me tell you, uh, that movie should have been drowned upon arrival because that movie is awful. <laughs> I describe it as a white trash murder mystery with, I mean, we're talking Danny DeVito, Nev Campbell, Will Ferrell, Melissa McCarthy's first like movie role, Ooh. Casey Affleck, William Fickner, and Bette Midler, and JLC. I mean, that crazy cast. Yeah. Like big time. But holy moly, it's awful. 
And but she plays kind of like a redneck smoking cigs all the time. So different for and there's also a bunch of like every car in the movie is a Yugo. And my mom had a Yugo growing up. So that fascinated me (laughs) watching the movie. Were those the ones that exploded? Yes. Yeah, the little itty-bitty cars. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm pretty confident they recalled them because they were like, if you hit them from behind, they like burst into flames. Pretty much. <laughs> Literally, the opening credits, before you get in anything, it's a bunch of text about how the town was the biggest producer of Yugos in the country. <laughs> but And it's like, but that's a story for another time, dot, dot, dot. And then it goes into the movie. Did she basically play the same role Janny played in I, Tanya? Kind of. Not nearly as commanding or important the story because okay. it's a huge ensemble. But she plays a, a kind of a, like a redneck waitress. Bad movie. Just terrible movie. But it's interesting if you want to learn more about Melissa McCarthy early on in a comedic role alongside Will Ferrell. Yeah. And Casey Affleck very early, too. Casey Affleck also said it is the project he enjoyed the least of anything he's ever worked on in his career. So, yeah. So maybe it is worth watching. I don't know. 2001, she's in The Tailor of Panama as a character named Louisa. And then 02, she makes a very brief appearance in Halloween Resurrection, another entry into the Halloween universe. And then 2003, Freaky Friday. She plays Tess. As I learned, she got called on a Thursday to come be a part of the movie. She was filming by Sunday. Oh, shit. So she had no time to prep for this at all. And it is one of the most complex roles she's ever done in her career in terms of flip-flopping with her and Lindsay Lohan. Does she pull it off? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you haven't seen Freaky Friday? No. It's like a classic, what's the word? Body switch. Body switch. There you go. Yeah. It was filmed right in her backyard, so it was easy for her. It was local. What in your knowledge about my film viewing habits would lead you to believe I would watch Freaky Friday? <laughs> I don't know. You're right. <laughs> she has a hilarious line on the front end when she first does the body switch. She's standing in front of the mirror and she goes, I look like the Crypt Keeper. And it's, yeah. it's so good. It's so iconic. You know, for her to have to switch back and forth between pretending to be Lindsay Lohan and this character without any prep. Pretty impressive. To support anything fellow Long Islander Lindsay Lohan does. So, of course, I loved this movie more than anything. Big fan of the reviews. The only reason I think this movie got bad reviews is because the critics loved it, but the fans did not like it. Yeah. And I think it's because of Lindsay Lohan backlash. I think it was. This was the time when she was the first it girl on what was social media at that time. And they're like, oh, Lindsay's in the news again. We should just hate everything she does. And... They didn't look at this movie through just the eye of judging the movie, and they're like, "No, we don't like that person." Because it was, <laughs> it's fine. It's it's a little corny, but it it's it's a it's a funny kid movie. Yep, it's for kids. And I would imagine it'd be fun for both parties to play each other. It'd be fun for Lohan mm-hmm. to play Curtis, and fun for Curtis to play Lohan. Mm-hmm. Yep. And usually in body switch movies, one of the actors gets a short end of the stick. <laughs> well, speaking of 2004 casting, she gets casted alongside Tim Allen in what our, we're calling her lowest critic score, and that is Christmas with the Cranks. And James has this one. Kyle so politely said what we're calling her lowest critic score, but it is actually, in fact, her lowest <laughs> critic score. <laughs> Not even close. It's way the lowest. It was an easy one to pick. Let's put it that so way. So while House Arrest is a whopping 10% critic score, Bullshit. Christmas with the Cranks, half that, 5%, lowest she's ever had. So when I first got this movie, I thought to myself, I was like, oh, that's not that bad. That's probably a terrible rating. For some reason, I remember Christmas with the Cranks coming out. And so my guess is like, it's going to be shitty, but it's not going to be 5% shitty. (laughs) 
but I will get to my review on there shortly after this synopsis. So this movie came out in 2004. It is obviously a Christmas film. It's based on a 2001 novel called Skipping Christmas, which was written by John Grisham. Uh, this movie is written and produced by Chris Columbus, uh, not to be confused with the holiday we celebrated the other day. It stars Tim Allen and Jamie Lee Curtis as the main couple. The entire movie is based around their relationship and a situation they find themselves in. Uh, Dan Aykroyd is also in it, and he is their neighbor and foil for their plans. The f- so the synopsis that's online is a film that tells of a couple who decide to skip Christmas one year since their daughter's not going to be there, and it's much to the chagrin of their neighbors until their daughter decides to come home at the last minute. However, that's not really what happens in this movie at all. What actually happens is a couple decides to take decides to make a decision to go on vacation for Christmas instead of spending, and they tell you very clearly, $6,100 on Christmas like they did the year before, and they're going to spend half that, $3,050, on a uh, Florida, on a cruise vacation. And for some reason, their neighbors and coworkers feel entitled to tell them not to do that. And I would tell my neighbors and coworkers to go fuck themselves. Yeah. <laughs> and so that is exactly what Tim Allen does. And he convinces his wife, Jamie Lee Curtis, that they should go on vacation. And so the first hour of the movie is them telling all their neighbors and the hijinks that ensue to fuck off because we're going on vacation. And then right as they're about to go on vacation, spoiler alert for Christmas with the Cranks, their daughter says she's engaged and she's surprising them by bringing her fiance home to celebrate Christmas with them that day. And instead of telling their only child, congrats, but no, we're leaving for vacation, they lie to her and say they're having a huge Christmas party. And then the last half hour of the movie is the entire town coming together to plan this party. This movie's only an hour and a half, but the le- it, it feels way longer than that. Like I checked my, I checked the clock and was like, "There's no way this movie's still going." It has like five different endings. There's an emotional ending that is completely unearned. You're just like, "When did we start caring about that?" Oh, I guess, I guess that's over then. In regards to the movie in general, like it's not five percent bad, but it's act, it's definitely bad. I would put it at max at like. 30 20 yeah yeah so the, the 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 fans have it at like 35 i believe i think that's a little high jamie lee curtis's character is so cartoonishly incompetent when it comes to anything that doesn't have to do with planning christmas that it's just not realistic like anytime she leaves the house that this movie is filmed in she is just a huge unlikable idiot it's like oh no someone asked me a question you know i can't answer questions oh i'm so frazzled I hated her character out in that aspect. The only times I enjoyed it was I thought her and Tim Allen definitely did have chemistry. And I think the funniest parts of the movie are when they're kind of riffing off of each other. Um, one thing I did find funny, though, is after this movie, she mentioned she's retiring from acting. So I'm assuming she knew it was going to suck. And Rotten Tomatoes has this movie ranked as the second worst Christmas movie of all time only behind The Nutcracker, which came out in 2013, the adaptation, which has no positive reviews. So it's only behind a zero. Oh, legendary. That'll put anybody into mini-retirement. <laughs> yeah. It's like, well, you guys can't just skip Christmas. It's like, who the fuck are you? Yes, we can. Leave me alone, you weirdo. And it's it just not a driving plot point. And the fact that she is like so stupid in every normal everyday task. And she, she's normally such a likable person and she always plays a smart person. You know, she 
perfected the genre of the final girl because she plays intelligent characters and she is just an imbecile in this movie. If Christmas with the Cranks had a spinoff where it turned into a horror film, she would be the first person who would die. Absolutely. 100%. (laughs) There's a plot line about her going to get a specific type of ham from the store and she almost almost gets run over by a Mack truck while trying to buy this ham because she's so focused on this ham and it just she knuckle fucks it and it rolls into the highway and she's like oh i gotta go get it and almost gets hit by a truck it's like you deserve to die if that's how you go out is a rolling ham into oncoming traffic the scene that i will always remember is when she calls tim allen in a panic because the neighbors are there to try to get the uh is it to get the snowman or whatever it is and she's she's freaking I'm like what do i do yes just fucking tell him to leave or don't answer yeah. the door like come Dude, th- on. That, that's when you get introduced to her not in riffing with him and like that character's like what am i supposed to do when there's people at the door I'm like what world out. do you live in where you don't know the answer to this question <laughs> like, yeah, it's painful oh sorry james that you had to Bite the bullet on Christmas with the Cranks. Yeah, so Christmas season's right around the corner. This is a great movie for you and your family to watch. Highly suggest it. Loved it. Christmas with the Cranks. Nowhere to go but up after watching the second worst Christmas movie of all time, James. <laughs> well, as coming off Christmas with Cranks, a little retirement, a couple years off. She comes out of retirement in 08, four years after Christmas with the Cranks, to be in a movie that I think is almost as equally as terrible, and that is Beverly Hills Chihuahua. <laughs> she plays Aunt Viv. This was a terrible movie. Hey, man, enough people liked it. It world grossed $149 million. Of course, it was George Lopez talking as a talking chihuahua, and there's a, a massive... Ch- it's so stupid. I'm sorry if it, hey. for the chihuahua enthusiasts out there. If you're going to come out of retirement, get paid. I guess. She did. She did. This was probably also around the height of the Taco Bell Chihuahua uh, marketing plan. So they were probably like, we got to cash in on that talking Chihuahua money. I hate everything. I fucking hate everything. <laughs> Part of the uh, the run on Disney movies, too. She had three on Disney Plus. It was uh, Freaky Friday, Beverly Hills Chihuahua, and then another one we're going to talk about here in a minute. But 09, she narrated a movie about dirt. It's a documentary about agriculture, but it's called Dirt the Movie which is an interesting topic to narrate a documentary on, but all about the health of the soil, which I thought was cool, different. And then 2010, another Disney movie. She's in You Again. She plays alongside her buddy Sigourney Weaver in a, in a movie about bullying across generations. Five episodes of NCIS, played Dr. Ryan. So for the NCIS fans out there, you'll recognize her character. Couple years. I mean, she's not super busy during this time, or at least with noteworthy projects. 2015, she's in a movie called Spare Parts alongside George Lopez. Actually, kind of caught me off guard. It's on Hulu. Kind of an it's an interesting, unique, true story about this high school who put four young Hispanic kids dealing with immigration issues into a college robotics competition. And they win, spoiler, they beat MIT, Cornell, and all these major schools. And they still do to this day. Like, they won the next couple of years. And so it's it's kind of an inspiring little story. She plays yeah. the principal of the school. And she gives her all. She's fun in it. Very much a cheerleader for their success. But that movie kind of caught me off guard. I didn't expect it to be as good as it was. If you're looking for a little bit of a tr- inspiring true story, there you go. One of her highest audience rankings. Yeah, I think it's formulaic. Right. Like a lot of those stories are. But the punch, even if you read the critic reviews, they gave it like a 40, 50. They'll even say that the payoff was good, that the story is still pretty 
it's a good story. It's just told in a formulaic way. And then the big kind of return back to the horror genre for after a while away from it was in the show that's currently on Hulu called Scream Queens. She plays Dean Munch, a like if you think Animal House, like a Dean Warmer type of character that really has it out for the Kappa Kappa Tall House. And it's a fun show. She got her seventh Golden Globe nom for the role. And that's the movie or the show I was talking about with Glenn Powell. Did anybody else watch Scream Queens or catch it? I watched the whole first season. I enjoyed the shit out of it. I've seen a few episodes and yeah, it's it's good. And she's Dean Warmer's a really good, uh, really good comparison there. I like that, Kyle. Yeah. Yeah. She's even more maniacal than he is. And in, in times too, where she's. She wants these girls to die. Like Dean Warman just wanted to shut down the chapter. Like she, yeah. she sometimes wants these girls to perish. At this point in her career, she's perfect for a TV series because she's able to do so much. Mm-hmm. So over a long period of time, she's given space to do a lot of things. It's just good, dumb fun. What's the psycho callback? So the psycho callback is there's a scene in the first season towards the end where Jamie Lee Curtis is in a shower and it's framed up the exact same way her mom was in Psycho. So then it pans from inside. You see the the devil killer coming in with a knife. He rips it open. She's not there. And all of a sudden she just bats him in the head from behind and then smashes his head into the wall. And she goes, I've seen that movie 50 times. So it's like this really cool callback to Psycho. And, and her mom. Then another TV show she, over six years, she does six episodes of New Girl. Great show. She plays Zoe Deschanel's mom. Her husband is Rob Reiner in the in the show. And she's a fun returning character in that one over the years. And then we return to the I know she doesn't like it being called a reboot, but the I guess reimagining the return to Lori's original story in Halloween 2018. I love this movie. I love her role in it. I, I love the fact that she is a maniacal badass who cannot wait to get after Michael Myers. The whole arc of her character, I love the way it's portrayed. I love the direction the movie goes. Yeah, I, I do too. And I think for anybody who, you know, the fact that she's, it's been, you know, uh, 40 years, 40 years. Point, and literally her whole life, has evolved around getting away from this fucking guy. Like I, I think I would, I think my character would arc too. I think I'd turn into like making it my sole obsession to kill this motherfucker. Yeah. And she is, she's, she's creepy in it. She's like, she's legit. I mean, she's like a crazy person, but like, she's, she's good. She's deranged. And that's, and that's what they needed from her in this. Someone whose, you know, mind has just been warped by this guy for her entire life. And people wanted this content. It set a box office record still to this day for October and for actresses, lead actresses over the age of 55. Which is amazing. Oh, damn. Yeah. Yeah. People wanted this content. Yeah. It pulled in $256 million world gross on a $10 million budget. It's her second biggest grossing movie. I saw this film um, at Fantastic Fest when it premiered and uh, she was there, which was amazing. Hearing her talk about it. You know, it'd be easy to say like, oh, it's a paycheck or, but she was so, she said she was just so moved by the script. And so she's so still so connected to this character of Lori and to have a film that portrays trauma in such a meaningful way. Like that's what she said she was really drawn to is the fact that it portrayed emotional scars and trauma and what would happen if you actually went through something this horrific. 
And Danny McBride co-wrote it, right? He's co-writing this whole trilogy, right? Yes, yes. Which I think is just like, what? <laughs> Danny McBride known as being a comedian? Like, are just coming on doing some horror. It's awesome. It's cool. So we've got two, uh, two reviews left back to back. Two very different reviews, let's just say that. <laughs> we'll go into first largest audience gap, which is an acceptable loss. And let me tell you, from 2018, the gap is sizable. And Rigby, I'm sure, is very excited to talk about it. Rigby, does this title reflect your time? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was, it's an hour and 40 minutes that I'll never get back, unfortunately. <laughs> and it's it's an unfortunate movie for her to follow the successful 2018 version of Halloween on. I'll just say that. Yeah. So it's a it's a 2018 political thriller film uh, directed by Joe Chappelle, I believe. is I think that's how you pronounce it. He's perhaps known for his work as a director and producer of The Wire on HBO. And the movie stars Jamie Lee Curtis as U.S. Vice President Rachel Burke. And it's co-starring Tika Sumter, who plays Libby Hamm and is Burke's former national security advisor. The movie takes place four years following a controversial foreign policy decision by Hamm that led to controversy and outrage. And when the plot is introduced, you don't really know what that decision was. You just know that Tika Sumter's character, Libby Hamm, is like this extremely controversial character who just got appointed a professorship position. And there's all this protest and stuff around her. And then you eventually learn that she was responsible for being the architect of a nuclear attack in Syria that led to the deaths of hundreds of thousands of civilians. When she's given the new job at the, at the college, um, she begins to be stalked by a student. The student is actually from Syria, and he plans to basically psychologically torture her and make her life a living hell. Um, eventually, however, the student and the audience learn that Ham is actually manufactured fake intelligence based off of the orders given by the then Vice President Rachel Burke, played by Jamie Lee Curtis. And four years later, Jamie Lee Curtis is now the president of the United States, and the rest of the movie revolves around the student and Tika Sumter trying to expose the president, Jamie Lee Curtis, for the true atrocities that she committed. The plot might sound cool and interesting, but I can assure you that the movie is pretty lame. It's almost like a B-movie on Lifetime. It's very melodramatic, and I, I don't really actually think the performances are any are any good, including Jamie Lee Curtis, unfortunately. Because she's like the architect of this whole like war crime. She's so like cold-blooded and calculating that there's really no ounce of like brevity or just like any sort of like single positive moment throughout the whole film. Uh, and that's for all the characters. Like, it's just a very, like, dumb sort of eye-rolling type movie. And as someone who loves, like, a good political thriller, like Parallax View, All the President's Men, The Ghost Rider even from recently, this one just does not fit the bill, unfortunately. I wish Jamie Lee Curtis had stayed away from it. And as far as I'm concerned, it it deserves its 12% on Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah, the the fact that the, there's a 60-point split yeah. between 72-12 is, is pretty brutal. 72%? Yeah, why would audiences give this a 72%? Well, there's only 100 plus ratings, which tells me that not that many people have reviewed this. Okay. And so it is streaming on, I think, Hulu. People Hulu, don't go yeah. watch it. Don't go watch it. <laughs> don't add to it. It might as well be streaming on Lifetime Movie Club. That's what it felt like. It felt like a Lifetime movie. It's just... <laughs> I'm just thrilled that Rigby finally had to watch a steamy pile of crap. That, that's not true. I have to, I, I sit through some, I had to watch Father of the Year with fucking David Spade, all right? That's true. You did get stuck with that big old pile of dookie. 
Yeah, but like when you get like lowest anything, you usually get masterpieces. Yeah, the rest of us get crap. I know. So I got ever since I got jury duty from Stanley Tucci. I I, I feel like I've been blessed. <laughs> oh, jury duty! What a what a classic Tucci. Yeah. Roll. All right. Well, speaking of not steaming piles of shit, our highest critic score is going to be Knives Out from 2019, and because Warren's not here, I get to take his review. So I get Knives Out. Let me tell y'all. It was just as good as the first time I saw it, maybe even better, and I gave it a nine the first time I watched it. Love this movie. For those who don't know about Knives Out, one, where you been? But two, early on in this project, it was attached that Daniel Craig was going to be involved in it, but they just used that to kind of dangle people to get more, get some cast. She got excited because she heard he was doing it and potentially Michael Shannon. She's also a huge Michael Shannon fan. She said that all she had to be told ever is that it's a movie and Michael Shannon's involved and she'll do it. That's <laughs> it. And so I love, love her for that because I love Michael Shannon. That's awesome. Yeah, that's a great point. He's incredible. But for those that haven't seen it, the cast is stacked in this movie. It's JLC, it's Don Johnson, Michael Shannon, Chris Evans, Anna Diarmas, Daniel Craig, Ricky Lindholm, Tony Collette, Lakeith Stanfield, Christopher Plummer, Catherine Langford, The Split. It's crazy big here, 97.92 on Rotten Tomatoes, so above 90 for both. People, critics love this movie and and well-deserved. Synopsis, very quick. Christopher Plummer's character dies, the family comes together, and it's a whodunit with a really fresh take to it, and you can tell as the movie goes on. JLC plays Linda Harlan, played by Christopher Plummer, his eldest daughter. She's the first family member you meet after his death. And you start to get a pretty good glimpse of her personality, or character's personality at least. She has a very memorable outburst after the reading of the will <laughs> that shows, basically she demonstrates the anger of the family. And she, her character has a, a very dry, sarcastic delivery that's a lot of fun. I wrote down the quote here where she's like, they ask about the party and she goes, oh, the party? Pre my dad's death? It was great. In terms of performances, I'd be interested in your guys' thoughts here because such a great cast, great performances. In my mind, the performances from one to five go Daniel Craig for me, number one. Diarmas, number two, because those two are kind of the emotional beats. Chris Evans, three, his character's turn. Tony Collette, four, and then I put JLC at fifth. But I also think Michael Shannon's great, and even Don Johnson's slimy ass is pretty solid in the movie, too. So um, I, it's hard to stand out when you're in this good of a cast, but she yeah. does a pretty good job with her character. And I love the final scene in the movie. I think the framing of her coffee mug saying my house, my my coffee and all of them looking up at her, I think is a perfect way to end the movie. Spoiler. Um, so I'd love to throw it out there. Y- y'all's thoughts on Knives Out. I love Knives Out. I think that scene, her outburst is is one of the best scenes in the movie. Definitely one of the most memorable. But I, I love Knives Out and I can't wait for the next one. It's a, it's a great movie. It's it is quick witted. It's clever. It's a whodunit, but it does a twist on the genre so Mm -hmm. even if you're like oh this is kind of like these movies aren't really my style it makes sure to kind of subvert that quickly so you are just wrapped in immediately i saw this movie in theaters and i loved it i watched it again for this podcast and i loved it and the donut metaphor the whole donut thing on the end it makes so much more sense the second time you watch it because the first time you watch it you're like what the hell is he going on with this whole donut hole inside a donut inside of a hole but now that you know what's going on, it just it makes a lot more sense. And call back to Columbo. Yep. 
way back early in her career, the whole donut scene with Columbo. Now we, we see this whole donut scene, even though she's not in that scene. Daniel Craig doing that. So pretty cool. And I think the coolest thing that came from it is she said that Halloween 2018 and Knives Out so reinvigorated her love for film and this work that she's planning to write and direct her own screenplay. That's awesome. I think that's kind of the next step. Hell yeah. Written 13 books. Knives Out is her highest world gross, highest critic ranking, and highest audience ranking. Mm -hmm. 2019. And she started in 1978. Mm -hmm. 41 years later. God, crazy. Crazy. I freaking love Knives Out. and I love seeing her come back to the center stage in such a like incredible way and obviously as like a genre fan it's really it's super exciting to see and the fact that she's been doing this so long and could easily like retire and just be like okay i'm done but is still just going so strong is really like amazing to see yeah i'm sure she's made a decent amount of money that she doesn't have to do this work but she's (laughs) getting excited by the work so good for her all right let's round it out last couple years did a couple episodes of archer um, big time, although she hasn't gotten the Oscar, she did receive the Golden Lion Award from the Venice Film Festival for Lifetime Achievement in Film. Wow. So that's kind of like her Oscar. That's a big deal. Yeah. And again, she doesn't, the types of roles she plays aren't necessarily Oscar worthy roles, except for getting into Knives Out, but that's a big ensemble cast. So it's hard to stick out. And then finally, Halloween Kills. By the time this will have landed, Halloween Kills will have been out for a little over a week, actually a week on the dot. We can't predict the future on this one other than. You know, expect that. I I heard from her in an interview that because Michael survives the fire, that he is more violent than normal. And then that's what we should expect. Sweet. I mean, he's been murdered so many times. So like, <laughs> <laughs> he's pissed. It's the big twist in all of the movies. Is like, but what if he's actually dead this time? Not and really. then he's not. He's just not dead. Yep. He's an unkillable man. <laughs> <laughs> All right, top performances. Rigby, what do you got for us? So I'm going to give you guys a Munson's choice on this. So I found two lists that are – one is a top performances list, but it's from 2018, so it doesn't include Knives Out. So it's a little old. We can either do that or because this is a horror-themed episode, I found a list from 2021 that is the top five Jamie Lee Curtis horror performances that don't include Halloween. So a little critical thinking here. Ooh. I would vote second list. Agreed. Let's go second, second list. list. All right. But Stephanie's going to be able to answer him before Rigby even yeah. lays it out. <laughs> this is, yeah, best horror roles that aren't Halloween, and it includes it includes TV. Just as a hint, we talked about four of them. We didn't mention one, I believe. Ooh. All right. I'm going to put my one guess in. Give me Scream Queens. Yep. That's number one, actually. <sighs> I'm going to go the, the fog. fog. Yep. Prom night. Prom night. Yep. We're moving right along here. What, what, what number was the fog? What number was prom night? Prom night's four. Fog is two. Okay. My girl. <laughs> <laughs> I was terrified to watch it. Uh, Drowning Mona felt like horror watching it. Yeah. But I don't think that one's either. I'm going to go on a limb and say road games. Nope. Terror train. Yep. That's number three. Good call. All right. So what's the one we didn't mention? So number five is Virus. Oh, the Virus? Virus? From 1999. I remember this movie being a critical bomb. Uh, I don't know about the box office, but I remember critics hating 
it. Yeah. It lost $44 million. So, so okay. definitely a box a office and critic bomb. Big old pile of dookie. Yeah, this, this article says it's since gained a cult appreciation, but I, yeah, I just remember it being really badly where it came out. I, I think we can all agree that Halloween, the 78 version, is num- would, would be number one on any top performances list just because of what, what it means. Yeah, for sure. What's the top three from the other list? Just We don't need to guess it, but give us the maybe the top three or top five. Halloween. Yep. Halloween H2O. Okay. Yep. And My Girl. Interesting. <laughs> oh. Oh, I mean, she's good, my girl. And that's from ComingSoon.net, so I like that. Oh, one of our go-tos. And then four is True Lies, five is A Fish Called Wanda, six is Mother's Boys. There you go, Stephanie. Oh, there you go, Steph. Freaky Friday. Oh, Christmas with the Cranks is on here, so I'm glad we didn't <laughs> do this. Uh, get it on there. Let's go. All right, so let's get into the Munson meter. The way this works, every one of us ranks the actor on a scale of 0 to 100 based on a variety of factors that could include longevity, project choice, pop culture impact, acting range, awards footprint, any other talents they might have, personal life, comedic chops, box office success or lack thereof, and anything else that we want to add or take points away for. And this time we will start with Case. Well, I will preface this with my Munson meter score is neither reliable or rational when it comes to Jamie Lee Curtis. Stephanie used this word earlier, and I'm glad it came up before I'm saying it here. Simply put, she's an icon. I don't know that we've looked at any other real icons or any other performers that have basically created genres. Her career dates all the way back to 78 and it's such an iconic role and she embraces it and yet was not limited by it and then she still continues to drive that franchise and and kick-ass roles she pulled off being a legitimate movie star it's very hard to find movie stars in any era and she pulled that off and there's just not enough you can say about her career and the impact that she's had on the industry and what i love about movies and then on top of that She's an author, which I hold incredibly high regard. The final point I'm going to make is, is and we, we alluded to this a little bit, but the Halloween series is so great because I think it captures her growth both as an actress and as a person. And that's a really cool thing to be able to look at and have your career reflect. But I'm not going to belabor my point anymore, and I'm going to give her a wildly high score, and I don't care if you guys think it's too high. I'm going to give her a 94. Yes. a boy. Ace, welcome to the 90 Club. Finally. All right. Uh, next up is James. So the name recognition is probably up there as one of the best that we've covered. She's a genre-changing horror legend with mm-hmm. four-decade career uh, that spans TV, film, and children's books. Uh, I think the range there is great. She could have been pigeonholed into, you know, only being the final girl trope for the rest of her life and absolutely made a quick decision not to do that. And I think she's flourished. Yeah. The awards, though, are just okay. She hasn't received a ton of recognition, probably because of the movies she's chosen, mm-hmm. which I could see her in more dramatic roles moving forward, which we've kind of seen over the last few years. If you look at her filmography like she dominated the 80s and 90s with huge blockbuster successes of movies but then in the 2000s like the vast majority of her movies that she's in are 
truly awful. <laughs> They've recently improved. So again, four decades, they can't all be winners. That third third quarter of decades though is pretty terrible but over the last 10 years they've absolutely improved i'm excited to see what this upcoming chapter holds for her because she's mentioned that she's kind of reinvigorated by the movie she's recently done and you know she's choosing roles for herself now but i just can't overlook the amount of truly terrible movies that she's been in on a personal level she scores huge points with me uh being honest about her sobriety and addiction and really commendable it's i wish more celebrities did that especially the way that she's done that which is brutally honest and kind of painfully honest yeah she also once was quoted in saying i felt like i finally found my purpose when i discovered philanthropy and that's something i wholeheartedly agree with to the point where that's actually where i work when not podcasting with you uh munson's here and she's been involved in so many charities that i tried to write them out but it would make this review even longer than it currently is it's it's well over 30 anything that's a good cause she is highly involved in it she's a legend she's a great person who's super easy to root for and i hope she continues to take roles that put her in a position where she finally received that award recognition which is hard to say about someone who's gotten a lifetime achievement award and a hollywood walk of fame star with that said, she might be my number one if those things had already happened that we'd cover so far. But since they haven't happened yet, she's slightly under that. And I'm going to give her an 85. Stephanie, our guest Munson. Obviously, as someone really passionate about horror, I run a website dedicated to horror. Her impact as a woman in horror cannot be overstated. Yeah. Being one of the original screen queens and final girls, that alone would be enough to make me think that she's, like we mentioned, an icon and amazing, give her a super high score. But I think that with Jamie Lee, there's so much to love about her beyond her significant acting and comedic chops. You talked about her being a philanthropist. She's an activist. She The things that are really close to her heart are things that have to do with children, which is also really important to me. She's also a big supporter of same-sex marriage and civil rights. I love that about her, and I love how outspoken she is. We talked about her being a children's author, and I like that not only is she a children's author, but she writes about really important topics. One of her latest books was about how we teach children that what they look like is the most important thing about them. And she talks about our obsession with selfies and social media, which is something that just today I was scrolling Instagram, and she's in the news for talking about that again, talking about how... You know, our obsession with over-filtering and creating unrealistic expectations. And I love that she has been a champion for that. And she's also been really outspoken about how women are portrayed in Hollywood and these impossible beauty standards. Mm-hmm. I already fell in love with her, but one of the, the things that made me like really obsessed with her was she did this really iconic photo shoot for a magazine. And they wanted her to do this really glamorous spread. And she's like, all right, cool. Like, I will do this glam spread. And you can make me all up and I'll be all like sexy and beautiful. But for me to do this, the one thing that I want you to do, she had been really struggling with self-esteem and body image. We mentioned that she went through a lot of her career. She had the nickname The Body. So she was really sort of sexualized and and her mm-hmm. the way she looked was really important. And she had a lot of issues from that. And so she said that for the spread, she wanted to be shot in her underwear, not sexy underwear, just plain underwear, no makeup, no lighting, no filters. She wanted to be shot head to toe. They could put the glam spread, but on the other side of the spread, they had to show what she really looks like. Just be a normal woman. That seems like that should not be a big deal, but it was such a big deal, um, especially at the time, and made such waves. She and she's been really open, like she has self-esteem issues. She has not been confident. And so for her to do something like that that really requires a lot of 
bravery, really, like, based on, you know, being an, an actress and being known for her beauty. I just think that's amazing. And we talked about, you know, her being open with addiction and she also is open with the fact that the reason that she got addicted to Vicodin was because she had plastic surgery. Mm-hmm. And the reason that she did that is because she was on the set, ironically, of Perfect. And the cinematographer one day said he wouldn't shoot her because she looked puffy and she was going to look terrible on screen. And so she said that she was mortified. She, she like, just couldn't, couldn't take it. And immediately after wrapping, she went and got eye surgery. And that is what got her addicted to painkillers. And so it's really important to her to be outspoken about that and talk about how, you know, women in Hollywood are made to feel. I mean, just women in general, but especially like in a position like that where all eyes are on her. And I just, I love her for that so much. And she just seems like somebody you just like be able to hang with. Like she just seems like she'd just be cool. And I love the fact that she's BFFs with Sigourney Weaver, which gives her major brownie points. And also that she loves video games and she went to Comic-Con all dressed up and nobody even recognized her, which is also super cool. I love that she's nerdy and (laughs) uh, geeky and I think that's just amazing. And yeah, and I guess like to wrap up, I'm sorry I'm going so long, but the fact that she started in horror and then she obviously diverted from that and then she became like a quote-unquote serious movie star. And she, you know, most actors of that caliber would never go back to horror that would be seen beneath them. And the fact that she went back to horror, that she embraced it. And she said the reason she did H2O is because she considered it a love letter to the fans and to the genre and to what got her, her start. And so she said that even though she stopped doing horror, she always like, she has a soft spot for it because that's what made her. And she's super humble about it. And, you know, as a horror fan, I think that's pretty incredible that she embraces the genre, even though she doesn't really like horror, that she knows that that's what, you know, that's what made her who she is. And she still respects it and still like, you know, does that. So I am going to give her an also a very high score. I'm going to give her a 95. Hey, let's go. Tied for the highest <laughs> ever with Dames gave Cranston a 95 once upon a time. So you're right there. Rigby. Uh, yeah, you guys have hit it all. I think. I think in terms of name recognition, she's probably number one on the people that we've covered, starting with Halloween and just kind of building it up ever since then. She just seems like a really cool, great person. I love her personal life. And James mentioned that she's very honest about her sobriety. And I respect a lot today in today's Hollywood. I think a lot of people that come forward with that might not. I don't know. I I shouldn't say that. I shouldn't say they don't mean it, but it might not be in the in the best interest of them. And, And I think with her, that's not the case. She does have some stinkers on her resume, so she gets some points docked with me there. You know, she has gotten some some TV uh, award love. I'd like to see that translate to to the Academy Awards, but obviously that's, you know, she can just might depend on what role she wants to take in the future. So, but yeah, name recognition, she's number one, and I think that's where she gets the most points with me. So I'm going to give her an 87. I'll round this out. You guys have hit pretty much, I've been like removing things from my list. <laughs> my talking points as have gone along. But to some of the things that I loved that you didn't all mention, she re- rebuilt a synagogue in Hungary. She's very politically active, human rights campaigns, hates Donald Trump. Big fan of that. Mm-hmm. Women in recovery, children's hospitals. I'm going to dock her for Beverly Hills Chihuahua coming out of retirement for that stinker. <laughs> uh, she's going to get two off for that. I can't forget that because they're, to James' point, in the, the 2000s, there's some stinkers. But again, it's, you know, she's trying to figure out what that career is going to look like. But otherwise, I'm just kind of nickel and diming little little points here and there for awards, a little bit for longevity because of lack of consistency in certain areas. But 
overall, she's a top three performer for me of folks we've covered. She's not going to get higher than Emma, but at the end of the day, Emma Thompson for me is the best performer that we've looked at in my eyes. But for someone who loves Michael Shannon and is self-proclaimed a Vulgarian, that's worth an 87 to me. Feels fair, in fact. Go with it, man. What's it bring us to? All right. So with that score, that brings Jamie Lee Curtis to an 89.6, which puts her in second. Bingo. Very nice. <laughs> nice. Number two. Okay. Philip Seymour still number one. Philip Seymour with a 90.17. So he's only got a but a 0.6 lead on her. Wow, and that's Emma, awesome. Emma, Thompson, Emma Thompson at 86.6 in third. That's great. That's big time, Stephanie. You came on for a top three episode. Pretty impressive. This is fun. <laughs> of everybody we've talked about outside of Chris Hemsworth, those would be the two names everybody, if we're ever telling about our podcast, would know. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. This this episode is incredibly informative. 100% too. Yeah. Entertaining and informative. That's what we seek. <laughs> All right, James, what does she have coming in this young career of hers? <laughs> cool. So what she has coming up, she has a couple things, actually. Uh, she has one movie called Everything All at Once, which is already completed. And when I looked it up on IMDb, it's got a great synopsis. It's got no information other than this. It's about a 55-year-old Chinese woman trying to finish her taxes. So we got that to look forward to. <laughs> hey, man, taxes are hard. Yeah, I appreciate writers who... <laughs> take joy in their jobs like that. And they're like, I'll just simplify it. So no one knows what we're talking about. This is very well a horror film. (laughs) The third installment of this new Halloween trilogy called Halloween ends, which I'm assuming is the end, but since you can't kill Michael, who knows a video game adaptation. So Stephanie, to go off what you just said, uh, she has a movie that's already been completed. That is the movie adaptation of the video game Borderlands. Yes. Which she is starring in with Kate Blanchett and Jack Black. Oh, yeah. oh, Kevin Hart. This is a huge cast. This is going to be a big movie. Written by Eli Roth. Get out of here. Oh, that's going to be really cool. And also directed by him. Yep. And then a movie called Spycosis, which has just been announced, but there's no information on it. Still pumping out. We've covered young actors and actresses who have one or two things, and she's got four. Plus this whole writing a screenplay that she wants to do, too. Five actors that we're tossing onto the wheel next time. Our next episode lands November 4th. So post-Halloween here, our featured guest is Dames Marvs. He's making his return back. And Dames is going to come talk with us about one of these five actors. And so let's let's talk about him. We've got Daryl Hannah, Alexandra Daddario, Sissy Spacek, Sigourney Weaver, and Ray McKinnon. What do we think about that list? What do we love? What do we hate? What are we indifferent on? Sigourney, baby. Sigourney Weaver. Yeah. yeah. She'd be great. Do the BFFs back-to-back, Jamie Lee and then Sigourney. Why is Alexandria Daddario even on the list with these four other actors? It's... <laughs> <laughs> you know, she's an actress with a decent enough filmography to be on the list. And the randomly selected by the random number generator. <laughs> I'd be there. comfortable with all four, and there's various levels of who I'd rather versus in those four, but I have no interest in doing... Alexandra Daddario's filmography, which is just like gratuitous boob shot, gratuitous boob shot. Like Sigourney Weaver's got like 40 years of awesome movies. Sissy Spacek, it would also be great. She, we would get to talk about the one Terrence Malick movie that's actually good, and that's uh, Badlands. I don't know much about Sissy. If we did McKinnon, we'd finally get to talk about Ford versus Ferrari. 
There you go. He's yeah, it's a good movie. He's in Mud too. Mud's awesome. Yeah, he's a good supporting actor in a lot of stuff. Hick would come back up. Yeah. Oh, brother, where art thou? As well. Yeah. Oh, that's right. He is in Hick. Yep. Dude, that movie sucks <laughs> so bad. Yeah. Daryl Hannah is an interesting one. I mean, with like Kill Bill and things like that. But I don't know if she's been in a whole lot lately. Yeah, like I, I feel like no, but good stuff from the like 80s and 90s, though, for sure. Yeah, yeah that's true. You could talk about Wall Street, which I love. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, Stephanie, who would you pick? Sigourney Weaver. Sigourney, yeah. I mean, it's a silly question, right? Yeah. I think that's the go-to. I hope it's not Sigourney, because I'll be sad. I'll be like, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> you can come back anytime. That would be great. Aww, I had so much fun. Anybody seen The Straight Story with Sissy Spacek? No. no. Heard about it? It's a David Lynch movie from the 90s. It's about a guy who goes to visit his dying brother and he rides his lawnmower to see him like from Iowa to Wisconsin. Oh, no. Interesting. That actually took place from in the town where my parents are from. So that movie has a <laughs> to my heart. special place in your heart. Well, yep. we'll see uh, because Dames doesn't pick. We don't pick. We don't decide. The wheel decides and we'll see where it goes. Sweet. Wheel decides. Wheel does decide. <laughs> <laughs> Stephanie, this was a long episode, but when you're covering someone like Jamie Lee Curtis, you got to give the full runway on this. We appreciate you being here. This is like hot ones, camera here, camera there. Any plugs about your website, your podcast, wise words for our audience. The floor is yours. Yeah, I mean, I guess I'll just reiterate. I don't really have any new plugs. Just the website is morbidlybeautiful.com. That is definitely my labor of love, my passion. It is my second full-time job and keeps me very busy, but I obsessed with it and I have this great writing team and I mean obviously I'm biased but I think we do some really cool stuff and we try to publish new stuff every day uh, usually multiple articles a day we also have a podcast network on the site so we've got a lot of really cool shows I'm lucky enough to be on one of the shows which is Cheer and Loathing Mm -hmm. which is a really fun concept it's me and my co-host and basically the the concept is it's because we're friends and he hates everything like everything and I I tend to love everything so that's like our that's basically our stick I just Everything's like, oh, my God, it's so great. And he's like, yeah, it sucked. And so we just banter about um, the things that we love and hate. So that's that's been a ton of fun. We just started it fairly recently. We haven't done too much. We just entered season two. Um, and I'm having a whole lot of fun with it. So I listened to two episodes today. and It's a very entertaining and fun podcast. Thank you so much. The way she just described her co-host reminded me of Warren for some reason. And that's oh, what I was thinking. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> hey, when I was listening, it reminded me of Warren. Is he from Canada, right? He is, and he's super grumpy. <laughs> yeah, he'd be the Canadian version of Warren. <laughs> oh, man. We really do appreciate you because extremely knowledgeable, a lot of fun, and it was for a great performer. Thank you. Yeah, you were great, Stephanie. Thanks for jumping on Stephanie, with us. Stephanie, how often do you release new episodes, do you say? It's every other week. Okay, So cool. every other Sunday we release. Just like us. Just like us. So as we wrap up, remember you can find us on Twitter, Munson's at Movies. You can catch us on Instagram, Munson's at the Movies. You can catch us on email at Munson's at the Movies at gmail.com. Any final thoughts from Jamie Lee Curtis? You're dead. You have no security system. Your side window is wide open. Sometimes I can't tell the difference between your stupidity and your ignorance. Munson's out. <sighs> All right, let's go. Thank you for the education, gentlemen. We've just received a PhD in stupidity. Doctor, shall we?